We read first from James chapter 1, beginning with verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Dear fellow Christians, when you consider the words of James in the scripture that you just heard, how would you characterize or define good and perfect? Because he said every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. In other words, when you hear those words, do you include everything that God either brings or allows to come into your life, or just the good stuff, just the stuff that you wanted? that made you happy or the things that you desired. I'm guessing most of us, if we're in church, would answer one way, but most of us would honestly answer that it's really only the stuff that makes us happy, that it's a, film of a fulfillment of a desire that we would include in that good, perfect category. After all, doesn't the passage say good and perfect when it describes the gifts that come from God? And who better than me to decide which is which? That's really two questions, isn't it? While it is true that James speaks of every good gift, every perfect gift, the passage doesn't tell us who gets to decide which is which. And the fact is, we are supremely unqualified to set ourselves up as judges. We're not the ones who get to say, this happened to me and I sit in judgment over it as a bad thing. Do you need proof that you're not good at that, that you're not qualified to do that? Think back to your life. Think back in the past. Go back as far as you want. Can you think of anything that you thought of as good at the time and then with a the passage of time, you realized it was bad? Or something that you thought was very bad at the time and then again with a passage of time or growth and wisdom, you now look back at that as a very good thing. How many of you, for example, decided that your world was over because the love of your life dumped you in junior high? And that was the one with whom you were going to spend the rest of your life, and life is miserable, and you have nothing to live for. And then you look back years later, and you think, oh my goodness, thank you, Lord. Or maybe not even junior high, maybe you were in the marriable years, and something didn't work out, and it broke your heart. But then you realize with the passage of time that what you at the time label as bad, catastrophic, evil even, God was working through that for his good, for your good. Or when you were young, did you, did you like the rules? Did you like the punishment, the discipline from your parents? Wouldn't you as a child have labeled those things as bad? And now that you look back, you thank God for parents that disciplined you. You thank God for rules in society because we're seeing what happens when rules are abandoned. So we're not qualified, especially in the moment, 
to set ourselves up as judges as to what's good and what's bad. So who gets to decide? God, of course. Nor is it really even necessary that we ascribe, that we label everything as good or bad. The point is, our role is, we simply seek to walk in perfect harmony with God's Word and God's will in our lives, and we leave the rest to our God, not doubting His love, no matter what happens, not doubting His power, not doubting His existence, not doubting our own relationship with Him, but trusting that God is good. Always. Our text for this morning will help us in this. It's found in Paul's second letter to Timothy, the fourth chapter, beginning there with the 16th verse. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. This is God's word. We pray that God would fill, encourage, instruct, strengthen us through these words this morning as we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. It's probably not news to any of you that probably my greatest hero in the Bible is Joseph. I am amazed every time I read about, hear discussion about, consider Joseph and his life. It is it's hard for us to imagine the hardships that he endured. Uh, that most of us, those of you who had brothers, could you imagine them selling you into slavery, hating you so much, contemplating killing, and it was really only one of them that prevented them from killing you? Uh, I had brothers. I think maybe at times they thought it would be fun, but you punch each other in the shoulder when they deserved it. You'd make fun of each other, but they're your brothers. Imagine having 11 brothers that were not kind to you, and then getting sold into slavery, and then all the other things that happened. He served faithfully, and he was falsely accused and imprisoned. And then he helped a guy, interpreted a dream. The guy got out of prison and promptly forgot about him. And yet through it all, Joseph seemed to be able to maintain this upbeat demeanor. He remained honorable. He seemed to be able to recognize God's will in all these things, to see them as good 
rather than to label them as evil. He recognized that they meant them as evil, but he could still see God's hand in them, which to me is amazing, given how quick most of us, I am, to label something bad just because I don't like it. So we heard in our Old Testament lesson this morning the culmination or the end of that episode with his brother selling him into slavery. Or did we? Was it? Was it the end? There really isn't anything in the world that qualifies as happily ever after, is there? Other than heaven. That's just fairy tale stuff. After you're married for a while and you watch these, these stories, and then you see the two people that meet and they're happy and then they get married and they lived happily ever after. And you're thinking, oh, no, they didn't. <laughs> no, they didn't. That's two human beings, both very strong-willed human beings. They fought and they learned things about each other that they maybe didn't like and mm, not happily ever after necessarily. So was there a happily ever after here with Joseph? His life went on, and it's impossible to imagine that there was not hardship, as we would label it, as we would look at it, difficult times, he, that, that there, there wasn't, for example, stress as the leader of one of the superpowers of his day in the midst of a seven-year famine. You imagine the people crying to him for food. Now, he had wisely saved up, but people from all over the world, no doubt. Would there be enough? Do you turn anybody away? His brothers, was that a reconciliation that lasted forever? Well, I don't know that his brothers changed all that much. They're still scheming even after Joseph revealed himself, saying, hey, let's tell him that Dad said. Was there no strife? Nothing bad in the relationship afterwards? We don't know that's true. Joseph lived to be 110 years old. You imagine he didn't have aches and pains and arthritis and all the other things that are common with old age? It'd be most interesting to hear from Joseph himself what label he would affix to the various hardships of his life, whether good or bad. I think we have a good idea based on Genesis 50, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. The character of Joseph was that he regarded God as good, always. That's what I love about him. Not that he was perfect, he, he wasn't, which just to me makes him more approachable. He had, by the way, that, that insufferable, self-centered cluelessness of youth. Remember with his brothers? Hey, guys, look, Dad gave me this special coat. That means I'm more important than you are. And guess what? I had a dream, and all of you bowed down to me in my dream. Isn't that cool? Hey, Mom and Dad, I had another dream, and this time you bowed down to me too. And yet, what grace we see in this man who was able to suffer under all these things and still consider that God was good. 
always. In our text, we have an example, in fact, his whole life from Paul. As difficult as Joseph's life was, Paul's, we could argue, was immeasurably worse. Not only did he have to deal with the shame of having once persecuted God's church, but that list he gave in 2 Corinthians, listen again to all the bad things that happened to him. Are they servants of Christ? He's talking about those who are belittling him or demeaning his office. I am a better one. I'm talking as like a madman, so he's just letting us know here. He's just using this argument. He's not really thinking this. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, last one, so he is whipped five times, thirty-nine times each. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all these other things... There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of all the things that show my weakness. Yet despite all of this, what attitude did Paul have even about all of these things? In Romans 5 we're told, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, in other words, not only this hope of the glory of God to come, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So through all of that that we just read, Paul still saw God as good. Always. And that's the key word in that, isn't it? Easy for us. We say it all the time in our little texts or emails or even in person when something good happens. Hey, we have a new grandchild. God is good. Hey, I'm feeling better. COVID, I'm done. God is good. Hey, I was in a car wreck. God is good? Yep. Our text revealed yet more heartache and hardship for Paul, didn't it? Remember that the second letter to Timothy was written when Paul was in prison and knew he was not going to be released this time. He knew he was going to die. Still stinging, as we read, from the desertion by his friends. In our text, he says, everybody deserted me, but don't hold that against him. I'm telling you what happened, but I don't hold it against him, and none of you should either. But even there, even knowing he's been in prison, he found good in it, or he recognized it as good. Because he immediately says, but here's the deal. 
God stood by me, God sustained me, and enabled me to share the gospel with all those around me, with more and more Jews, that they might hear that message of life. So Paul didn't even feel qualified to label something as good or evil. We can say, as Joseph did, you intended it for evil. But we don't get to say whether God intended it for evil. Because we know he can make things, all things, work for our good. And then there's another clue in our text that I, I think it would be real easy to miss if you don't carefully look. It seems to be so inconsequential, almost as though, why did God, why did God decide to have this included in this letter? Why wasn't that just left out? It was these seemingly innoc innocuous words. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. What do you get from that? Nothing, just kind of information. Sort of the sports page, you know. You don't really need to get anything out of it. Let's look harder at it, because there's something really interesting here. So consider first these words from Acts 19. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Time frame's important here. In Acts 19, this was during Paul's third missionary journey. And we read that in Ephesus, which was about 56 to 57 A.D. That even a cloth that touched Paul was carried away and God was performing all these miracles. All were healed. And our text was written only about 10 years later. And yet we read Paul say, I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. What happened? Now, we know that as the New Testament came into existence, visible, obvious miracles diminished to the point that 10 years after even a cloth that touched Paul was able to heal, and Paul was able to heal everyone, 10 years later he had to leave Trophimus sick at Miletus. Did he pray for him? Silly to think he didn't. Of course he would have. Did he want him with him? We know because he said so. And yet God left this in God, or Paul left this in God's hands. He refused to set himself up as the judge. Did he blame God? Not at all. He gave information, and while Ten years ago, he would have just been able to say, you're all better, Trophimus, come with me, get on the boat. Now he had to just leave that in God's hands, but he didn't set himself up as the judge, labeling that as evil. He recognized God can make everything work for good. So he accepted that from the hand of his God. Would he, would he maybe have wanted Trophimus with him? Of course he would have. 
He labels him as one of his most trusted people. Maybe he wouldn't have been abandoned by everyone. Maybe somebody like Trophimus would have stood by him if God would have just healed him. But does Paul go there? Absolutely not. He just says, this happened. He's sick. We had to leave him, unfortunately. Do you get how different that is from example, the prosperity preachers of our day, the the, and the name it, claim it, vending machine God, theology guys. To them, God is the one. He's just this vending machine where you pick what you want and he has to give it to you. I want to be skinny. I want to be rich. I want to, I want to, I want to, and God, you got to do it. Because you told me, whatever I ask in your name, you have to give it to me. Not understanding what all went with that. There's a worse problem. There's all kinds of problems with that theology, but the worst part is they clearly set themselves up as the judge that gets to determine good and bad. They're the ones that get to say, I want this. And then the part of their theology is, if you don't give it, that must mean you're doubting God's power. There's a sin in your life. Sounds like Job's friends, doesn't it? So there's a problem there because when all things are working right, you just get to punch in your number and out has to come what you wanted. They're not qualified to do that, and neither are we. As unimaginable as it is that Paul would not have asked God to heal Trophimus, he didn't. Paul accepted it and looked for the good that happened. I could imagine him going to, boy, if Trophimus had been here, he would have stood beside me, it would have been so easier. And what did he do? He focused on the good that came. God stood by me. God gave me power. God is good, always. Even in this, God is good, because he supplied this need. Maybe not the way I would have, but who am I to judge God? Who am I to determine what's best for me? The good that happened is I was able to not only be sustained, but to share that message. Which brings us to the greatest evil that we could imagine. That the sinless Son of God would have to suffer, would have to pay a debt that he didn't owe for those who owed what they couldn't pay. And yet the greatest imaginable good came from that unjust suffering. God could make even that work out for good. Did Jesus ever mislabel what happened to him? Of course not. In perfection, he did not say, this is good, this is bad. He accepted whatever his father sent him and willingly walked that path to the cross. Never doubt God's wisdom, his love, especially when the hard time comes, what we see as hard, what we see as evil, what we see as disagreeable. The devil, the world, our own sinful flesh, there are all the purveyors of that evil. They want nothing good for us. They intend it as evil. But God is greater than they are. 
So when you look at Jesus Christ and what he did, how he has given you forgiveness, life, peace, comfort, assurance, when he gives you his own body and blood in his sacrament, remember, especially during those times when the world means us evil, the devil tries to destroy us, then say, with Joseph, with Paul, God is good. Always. Always.